2020 has been a long year, but apparently not long enough. Before the shelter-in-place orders, before the protests, Americans were prepared for a generational moment, the presidential election. And that moment is now only four months away. I know, someone every election year says that this election is generational. But this election is uniquely important. The last three and a half years have been, to say the least, taxing. Joe Biden called it the battle for America's soul. And it sure feels that way right now. In November, all of us will get to choose between him and President Trump. Sorry, did I say all of us? Well, not exactly true. To help us get up to speed on who is and isn't going to be able to vote in the upcoming election, I decided to talk to a journalist who has been keeping a close eye on voter protections and voter suppression. Sam Levine is a reporter at The Guardian, where he covers voting rights. And when it comes to the upcoming election, he's worried. I think right now we are seeing the alarm bells go off for a five-alarm fire in November. From Neon Hum Media, this is Telescope. I'm Jonathan Hirsch. Every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for the foreseeable future, we're going to bring you stories of people who are far away, up close, and how each of us are learning to live through this moment. The U.S. Constitution is what makes our country a democracy. It's right there in the first three words. We the people. But the folks who wrote the Constitution neglected to answer one of the most foundational questions at the heart of our democracy. Who counts as the people? More to the point, who gets to vote? At first, back in 1788, it was pretty much just white men who owned property who got to vote. They made up about 6% of the population. Not exactly a good start to a democracy. But eventually, almost all U.S. citizens got the right to vote, too. But it's not so cut and dry. The right to vote hasn't moved in just one direction. To sum it up, people in power have been trying to make it hard for groups who threaten their power to vote, especially Black people. But through war, protest, a few constitutional amendments, and laws like the Voting Rights Act of 1964, the right to vote has been, at least on paper, solidified. So today, if you ask the question, who gets to vote, the answer you're likely to hear is everybody, right? As long as they're over 18. The 232 years of state-sponsored voter suppression has made the answer a lot more complicated. I asked Sam to help us unpack and understand the state of voting rights in 2020. I think there's no question that the United States does not make it as easy as possible or as easy as it should be to vote. One major thing is that when we talk about elections in the U.S., we're talking really about 50 different systems. The U.S. Constitution gives every state the right to set up how it wants to run elections. Because of this rule, the election system is often celebrated as a safeguard of American democracy. Because our elections are so disjointed state by state, and sometimes county by county, 
it's nearly impossible for foreign governments to manipulate the outcome of an election, something our founders worried about when they wrote the Constitution, and something we still worry about today. But in a democracy, elections ultimately determine what a government does, and there is well-documented history of states using their power over election law to suppress voters, particularly voters of color. States have a lot of leeway in what they want to do in how to run elections. So that means that states can cut off voter registration, for example, 30 days before an election. They can require you to show identification at the polls. They can um, remove you from the voting list if you don't vote in a number of elections. And states can also strip you of the right to vote. 48 states in America say that if you are convicted of a felony conviction, you lose the right to vote. Depending on where you live, some or all of these rules might apply to you. And while some of them seem common sense laws, it's because they are designed to look that way. A lot of us carry around IDs all the time, and it feels natural that we would prove our identity to vote. But there are more than 21 million American citizens who do not have an ID card. And if you're poor, Purchasing an ID may come at the cost of a meal, or you may not have the documents you need to get an ID. Our own government's accountability office estimates that voter ID laws alone reduce voter turnout by two to three percentage points. So there are just a a whole tranche of laws and policies that shut people out from the ballot box. According to the ACLU, in a normal election year, these laws can prevent tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of eligible voters from casting their ballots. But this year is not normal. 2020 is a presidential election year in the midst of a global pandemic. I have been covering this beat, voting rights, for a few years, and the last Three or four months, really since the kind of outbreak of COVID in the U.S., have been unlike anything that I have seen before um, from from an elections perspective. The usual kind of rules of the game of how things usually go are just going to be different with COVID. Voters in most states physically go to the polls to vote. That means more than 100 million people flowing in and out of the polling locations. In the middle of a pandemic, election officials are worried about all the person-to-person contact causing a major surge in cases. States are dramatically and really scrambling to rewrite their election practices, processes, trying to put in place emergency measures to figure out, you know, how can we possibly pull this off in November? Leading up to November, state primaries have given us a sneak peek of voting during COVID. So far, it is not promising. In April, Wisconsin held its 2020 primary election as planned, despite efforts by the Democratic governor to postpone it and make it easier to vote by mail. Wisconsin Republicans fought back, going all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court to make sure the election happened as planned. And it didn't go well. This is so wrong. This is just so wrong. This this election should have been called off. You know, they're telling us to stay in the house and, you know, stand six feet from each other. But then one of the most important times, they're forcing us to come out here in a group. Stop playing politics with our lives. You know, that's what I'm feeling. 
70% of Wisconsin's Black voters live in Milwaukee, where only five polling places were open. Out of 180, people waited in line for hours to cast their vote. Others couldn't vote at all. And some experts think the primary may have led to a spike in cases there. People shouldn't have to choose between their health and their right to vote. They shouldn't have to go to the polls and risk their health if they want to vote. Wisconsin's governor tried to prevent the catastrophe by sending out applications to vote by mail, but it was too little too late. Vote by mail is an idea several states already use for their elections, and it works really well. But in a lot of states, it's only available to a select few, like the elderly, the military, and the disabled. But it might be a good solution for our pandemic problem. Legislators around the country are pushing for all states to expand vote by mail to everyone. But expanding voting by mail has set up all of these new challenges that we're seeing play out um, really every day now. For one, a lot of states just don't have a lot of experience in administering a mail-in election. You have to do all this stuff like set up a system for voters to request an absentee ballot. You have to print all of the ballots. You have to set up a system for processing the ballots once they get returned. And what we've seen over and over and over over the last few months are that states are just completely overwhelmed by this process. They're being crushed by absentee ballot applications. They are not able to turn around the applications and get the ballots to voters in time. Election officials in Georgia saw what happened in Wisconsin. They postponed their primary by three weeks from May 19th to June 9th to give them more time to prepare for what was inevitably a test of their voting system. Then, seven weeks before the primary, absentee ballot applications were mailed to 6.9 million active voters in Georgia. Any voter who wanted to vote by mail could just fill it out and send it back and receive their ballot. And as that process unfolded, it was clear that county officials could not keep up with the crush of requests that people were sending in. Uh, There were reports of people sending in ballot requests and then waiting weeks to not receive their ballot. In 2018, Georgia only had to process 270,000 mailed applications. Their election system isn't set up to handle millions of absentee ballots. And it was facing some of the same in-person voting issues that Wisconsin saw. At the same time, the state had a real shortage of poll workers and polling locations where they could host voting. So as the election got closer, we saw counties like Fulton County in Atlanta consolidating where people could go and vote. They had to move thousands of voters into single polling locations. And on top of that, Georgia rolled out this new voting equipment for the primary, equipment which poll workers couldn't be trained to use because of COVID-19. The June 9th election was a disaster. Georgia reported problems with new voting machines and a shortage of experienced poll workers due to the COVID-19 pandemic, but some blame voter suppression tactics. Normally, I wait in line for like maybe an hour, maybe. Um, This time, I've already been in line for three hours. There were also issues with absentee ballots in certain counties. The majority of folks I heard had applied for an absentee ballot and it was never processed. 
I don't really have an answer for why that happened. It's very disappointing. It appears that the problems were really concentrated in the Atlanta metro area in counties like Fulton County, which encompasses Atlanta and is obviously home to a sizable chunk of Georgia's African-American population and is kind of a big Democratic base in the state. In some places, Georgians waited for seven hours to cast their ballots. Voters were angry. Not only were they being put at a greater risk of contracting COVID-19, but they also felt like this was a way to disenfranchise them and reduce Democratic turnout. One mother was in tears as they let voters into the polling station. The lines, the virus, the protests on our streets was all too much. We need, we need justice. We need peace. We all need to come together. We should love one another. We should go through all this. Whose fault was it? There was a lot of finger pointing. Everyone seems to be blaming each other. The Secretary of State is the top election official in the state. He's charged with overseeing elections. And he has said that this was not his fault. The fault really rests with the counties who are responsible for administering elections. The counties have turned around and said it's the Secretary of State's fault. He is the top election official. The buck stops with him. They've said that there was they were raising warning flags for weeks that there were going to be problems and that he was unresponsive. Georgia has now officially begun an audit of the June 9th election to verify the results and hopefully prevent an even worse catastrophe from happening in November when many more people will be out to vote. Seeing the same election malfunction, and perhaps malpractice, play out all over the country, you might be wondering, isn't there something we can do about all of this? Voting is democracy, and several states are failing to ensure that the integrity of those elections remain in place. These are extraordinary times. And much like Reconstruction or the Civil Rights Movement, Sam says there are some ways to take control away from the states. The federal government can come in and put guardrails around how states run elections um, with major laws like the Voting Rights Act that prohibit discriminatory voting. But that would require our divided government to act together. Public policy experts estimate that we will need to spend $4 billion to fully prepare for the November election. So far, states have gotten far less than that. Congress has allocated just $400 million to the states so far. So I think that's what concerns me the most, is just time is running out, and there really doesn't seem to be any money there for states to figure out how to make this run smoothly. $400 million is too little. Soon, it could be too late. In Wisconsin and Georgia, we saw that Black voters faced the largest hurdles to voting during the pandemic. But we saw this pattern before COVID-19, too. In fact, since the Supreme Court repealed a key section of the Voting Rights Act in 2013, Republican-controlled states all across the country have been passing laws meant to disenfranchise Black voters. They've been shutting down polling stations in majority Black neighborhoods and passing voter ID laws that essentially amount to poll taxes making it hard for poor voters to afford the right to vote. And now, some top Republicans are focusing their energy on fighting access to vote by mail. 
President Trump has been unequivocally against mail-in voting. He has said on Fox and Friends that uh, more mail-in voting will make it so that you would never have a Republican elected in this country again. Uh, He has said that it will lead to fraud. He said a few weeks ago that people are going to be stealing ballots out of mailboxes and turning them in fraudulently and has really staunchly opposed any effort to make it easier to vote by mail. Sam's talking about two different issues here, voter fraud and actual election results. While voter fraud is a concern in any democracy, it's actually not a major concern, not for mail-in ballots or those cast in person. There have been several studies across the country that have shown voter fraud is extremely rare, it's extremely isolated. But despite the lack of hard evidence, the idea of voter fraud has been a useful tool for Republicans. It's allowed them to pass voting laws that result in fewer votes being cast by black and brown people. Voting by mail might lower some of those barriers. That's why Trump came out so strongly against it. Simply put, he thinks more people voting means fewer Republicans in office. It's a focus on winning instead of fairness on power over equality. But Sam says more voting by mail isn't necessarily going to affect election results. There have been studies that show, you know, vote by mail on the whole does not benefit Democrats over Republicans or Republicans over Democrats. A rising tide lifts all boats, both Republican and Democrat. But top Republicans are turning voting into a partisan wedge issue instead of ensuring voters are able to safely cast their ballot. Vote by mail has kind of taken on a lot of the familiar contours of of partisan battles over voting. Time is running out to get ready for the November election. Georgia had seven weeks to get voter absentee ballots, and they failed spectacularly. There are less than four months until the November election, And though Republicans at the highest levels of government are slowing down the process, there is still some hope. Republicans on the local level, I think, have been quietly much more supportive of vote-by-mail than their national counterparts. In Ohio, the Secretary of State has championed um, paying for postage to send absentee ballot applications to voters. In Iowa, the Secretary of State also chose to send absentee ballot applications to all voters, and the state wound up seeing a record turnout in its primary. No one wants to be the state where there are five, six, seven, eight-hour lines on the ground. And I think that's why you're seeing a little bit more of a willingness um, in several places to kind of engage on this issue. But not all local Republicans are pushing for vote-by-mail. Texas is leading the charge against it. Texas has really emerged in the last few months as a state that is just refusing to budge a single inch on expanding mail-in voting. Texas has really strict rules around who can request a mail-in ballot. If you're 65 and older, you can vote by mail. If you're going to be out of your county during the entire early voting period and during election day, you can request a mail-in ballot. 
But in Texas, just being afraid of COVID-19 by itself is not a good enough reason to receive a mail-in ballot. So Democrats in Texas are suing the state to say, this is a ridiculous system. It's completely unworkable under COVID-19. You know, to force people to have to go to the polls to vote is outrageous. Um, In recent weeks, we've seen cases rising in Texas. And the state has just really refused to budge. Last week, the Supreme Court decided that Texas doesn't need to implement mail-in voting. Texas Republicans hailed the decision as a victory against voter fraud. So, like voters in Wisconsin and Georgia recently experienced, Texans may also be in for long lines on Election Day. Voting in America is complicated. It's always been. But this year is unquestionably different. We're facing economic, social, and political upheaval. By the numbers, we are losing the battle against COVID right now. And there's great concern that if the problems are this bad now, it's going to be even worse in November when we're going to have two to three or more times the number of people voting. Sam is also worried about what will happen if we force voters to choose between their health and their right to vote. That's why he thinks vote by mail is a good solution when it's done right. But it comes with a catch. You know, there's no way that the election is going to end on election night. You know, there is going to be at least a couple of days, maybe weeks of counting ballots, um, and we're not going to know who won. Counting votes cast by mail is harder than counting in-person ballots. Each ballot has to be matched to the signature on your voter registration. It has to be verified, which takes time. And how do you prepare America for that possibility of just being in suspense and waiting? We've already seen, you know, the president is, is laying the groundwork for suggesting that the results of the election are going to be illegitimate, that there's something fishy with the with mail-in balloting. Um, and all of that just, it does not bode well, I think, for what's to come. More voters will be casting their ballot through the mail than in any time in American history. Our election system is facing a huge test. And Sam is worried. Early indications are that the system is failing. Early on um, during COVID, I was reporting a story and someone said to me, you know, if your system isn't prepared for an emergency, you know, how good is that system? If it's not working under these circumstances, can you really say that it's a system that works? And we're really seeing a strain on this fundamental thing that we think of um, in our society, voting. And it's not clear to me yet whether or not it's going to hold up in November. And that kind of is what scares me the most. Thanks to Sam Levine for talking with us today. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now.
You may have heard of the podcast Juicy Scoop. Wondered what it is? Why aren't you listening? Well, I'm its host. Created it. Been doing it for seven years. I'm Heather McDonald of Juicy Scoop with Heather McDonald. Now, I could tell you why you should be listening to my show, but my listeners wanted to write the ad for me, and here are some of the things they said. Not your regular juicy podcast. Catch up on all the juicy topics from Hollywood and pop culture to true crime and beyond. Heather McDonald's Juicy Scoop always has great guests, great laughs, and great gossip. It's a comedian's take on the hottest headlines. Juicy Scoop is the pop culture news you want to hear. No BS, no filter, no filler. Raw, real, and in the moment. Throw in the hilarity of amazing comedians that you'll instantly be obsessed with, a juicy crime story, and a dash of normal life in L.A. moments, and you've got yourself an amazing week of Juicy Scoop. Two episodes every week, every Tuesday and Thursday. It will never let you down. Every week we receive emails, private messages on Twitter, posts on Facebook from listeners. You're telling us what your lives are like and what you're going through. And at the end of every episode, we're going to share one with you. Katie Dodderer-Pyle is a dairy farmer in Maryland, just over the Pennsylvania border. A few months ago, she remembers going to her local grocery store and seeing empty shelves where the milk should be. It was at this moment that she realized her farm might not be okay. To her, those empty shelves meant that the supply chain wasn't adapting fast enough to meet the market's needs. And dairy farmers like Katie ended up with a lot of excess raw milk, which they either have to give away or just dump out. It's a step Katie hasn't had to take yet. I can't sit here and say that we're not going to dump milk. I don't know what's going to happen in the future. I don't know how this pandemic is going to, because the supply chain is going to be disrupted again as soon as the food service industry starts opening back up. So I I really don't know what to expect. But it left her with a realization. You walk into a grocery store and you don't want for anything. Anything that you want is there. And I honestly, I really hope that one of the big lessons that Americans are learning right now is not to take your food system for granted. Thanks, Katie, for sharing your story with us. Before we leave you today, I just want you to know, if you didn't know already, that Neon Hum does a lot more than just this Telescope podcast. We're producing a whole series of original shows that are coming out this fall. And we recently partnered with a number of media organizations to produce some new shows that you might have heard of, like Motive for Murder with NBC and Dateline. If you're interested in other projects that Neon Hum has under their belt, you can go to our website, neonhum.com, and sign up for our newsletter, You'll find interesting behind-the-scenes detail about this show, what we do here at Telescope, but you'll also hear about all the other great shows we have in store for you. So check it out, neonhum.com. Telescope is made possible by the world-class team of producers, editors, and engineers that make up Neon Hum Media. John Asante is the managing producer of Telescope, Today's episode was produced by Tanner Robbins. It was edited by Vikram Patel and Catherine St. Louis. Our engineer is Scott Somerville. Thanks to Matt McGinley for our theme music and to Blue Dot Sessions for additional tracks you hear on this episode. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Neon Hum Media or join us on Facebook by searching for Telescope. We want to stay connected with you during this time in our history, so don't be shy. Share your stories with us. Our DMs are always open. If you have a story about how you're battling the two viruses right now, racism and coronavirus, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at pitches at neonhum.com. I'm Jonathan Hirsch. 
have a great weekend. We'll see you on Monday.